Titus had been sent by Paul to pastor the church on the island of Crete. And in describing the Cretans in Titus chapter 1 verse 12, Paul quotes a local author who had characterized his own people as follows, always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. <laughs> Not a very flattering description to say the least. And Titus, understand, had been asked by Paul to pastor a church full of these Cretans. Obviously, a church full of very, very difficult people. Which brings up the question, how do you handle difficult people? As a church leader, how do you deal with folks who've never learned to express their opinion in constructive ways? This was the challenge facing Pastor Titus. Paul's letter to his friend Titus expresses one certainty. That is, when dealing with difficult people, strong leadership is an absolute essential. In these three short chapters, Paul, in essence, condenses the instructions that he had communicated in his first letter to Timothy, and he provides Titus a crash course in effective spiritual leadership. Paul introduces himself in verse 1 as a bondservant of God. Remember, a bondservant was a slave who voluntarily forfeited his freedom to remain in his master's house. Paul came to Christ with an enormous debt that he couldn't pay. Jesus paid it for him. But once he embraced Jesus, he realized that he could do better living in the master's house than he could ever do on his own. And so he gave up his freedom and he became a bondservant, a slave of Jesus Christ. I hope you're a bondservant. Of Jesus. Verse 2 tells us that our faith is in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested His word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. Note, though, here we're told one of the things that God cannot do. Did you notice that? He cannot lie. An interesting study that you can undertake when you get home is to go through your Bible and list all the things that God cannot do. James chapter 1 verse 13 is an example. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 13. God cannot deny himself. In other words, he can't violate his word. There are some acts that God cannot do, and one is to lie. That's why you can always take God's word to the bank. What he promises to do, he is faithful to do. Paul addresses this letter in verse 4. To Titus, a true son in our common faith. As with Timothy, Paul and Titus shared a special relationship. They shared a spiritual father-son type of relationship. Paul and Titus had known each other by this point for some, oh, 20 years. Apparently, they had met on Paul's first missionary journey to Galatia. Titus, remember, was a Gentile. And he became the flashpoint that ignited Paul's confrontation with the Judaizers in Jerusalem. The Jews tried to force Titus to be circumcised, but Paul refused. 
He refused to buckle in to their rules and their rituals. He knew that rules and rituals, laws and keeping laws, has nothing to do with our salvation. (coughs) Paul, (coughs) excuse me, took a stand for grace. He took a stand for God's grace. God had accepted Titus through faith in Christ alone, and Paul was going to accept him on the same basis. It reminds me, though, of the old joke. You've probably heard it. Somebody asks, what does a Grecian earn? And you're, you're thinking of a vase or a jar. You know, what's a Grecian earn? You know, what's a Grecian earn? You're thinking of a vase or a jar. And then some smart guy says, oh, about $10 an hour. Yeah. Titus was an example of a Grecian who had done nothing to earn God's favor. All he had done was put his faith in Jesus Christ, and yet all the righteousness needed to be pleasing to God had been given to Titus. Titus continued to minister with Paul over the years. Along with Timothy, Titus was a faithful and an effective troubleshooter. He was with Paul on his voyage from Caesarea to Rome when Paul stopped off on the island of Crete, a little southeast of Greece. And Titus stayed behind to minister to the church there. During Paul's second imprisonment, we know that Titus joined Paul in Rome for a short time. And then afterward, he ministered in Dalmatia. But eventually, Titus returned to Crete. The church historian Eusebius tells us that Titus pastored the Cretan church even into old age, which means it's possible to even grow fond of difficult people. In verse 5, Paul reminds Titus of his original purpose for staying behind in Crete. For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking. Guys, there is no such thing as a perfect church. And if there was, understand, the moment you joined it, you would ruin it. Every church has things that are lacking. Each church has its shortcomings and its deficiencies. Our church has its shortcomings and its deficiencies. Characteristics that are lacking. And it's my job as the pastor, it's our job as church leaders to be constantly taking spiritual inventory of our strengths and our weaknesses. When people inform me of some deficiency in our church, usually I'm one step ahead. Usually I agree with them. That's been my concern too. I'm always looking for those weaknesses. And it's our job to shore up those weaknesses as we continue to bolster our strengths. Verse 5 adds that it was also Titus' job to appoint elders in every city. In Acts chapter 6, the deacons were selected by the people of the church. But if you flip over to Acts chapter 14, verse 23, you find that the elders were chosen by the pastors and the existing leadership. And in the next few verses, Paul lists the qualifications for elders. And you'll notice his list is similar to the list that we found back in 1 Timothy chapter 3, proving that God's qualifications for leaders are the same in all churches. Timothy, remember, pastored in the urban city of Ephesus, whereas Titus pastored on the remote rural island of Crete. And yet leaders in both locales were called on to be men of the same stuff, the same character. 
The qualifications begin in verse 6. If a man is blameless, in other words, there should be nothing hanging over his head. You don't want your pastor to have outstanding warrants for his arrest. The husband of one wife, literally a one-woman man, a man who is loyal and gravitates toward one woman, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, not perfect kids, but not out-of-control kids either. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God. An elder or a pastor needs to understand that the church belongs to God, that we are just stewards. Once a salesman came to town looking for the local church of God. He asked a resident if he knew the way, the directions, to the church of God. The man answered, Well, you know, there's a church on Main Street, but, but it, it really belongs to a couple of rich dudes that keep it afloat. And then there, there's a church over on Maple Street, but it belongs to some stubborn old grunt that, that just runs the show over there himself. And yes, there's there's a church over on Elm, but it belongs to the family that founded it. No, no, I, you know, I don't think there's any church in our town that belongs to God. When an elder or when a pastor or a church leader acts as if the church belongs to them, there's a problem. Church leadership exists to represent God, to carry out His intentions. Every church should be a church that belongs to God. He goes on with these qualifications, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. A man who's afraid of confrontation Should it be a pastor or an elder? Verse 10 says, For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers. Idle talkers and deceivers. Notice, two types of insubordination. Implicit and explicit. If you entertain a criticism... If you're just trying to serve as someone's sounding board without sounding back that that criticism is unfair or wrong or uninformed, then you're really giving implicit approval to the criticism. You're becoming party to the rebellion. Idle talk is often just as dangerous as outright lies and deception. I read recently where for a virus to remain in the body... It has to have a host cell. It takes root in that cell. And that cell gives it nourishment and shelter. And then from there it begins to spread. And I believe the same is true with a bad attitude in the church. It too finds a host cell. A person or a small group of people who may not necessarily agree with the attitude, but they tolerate it. And without realizing it, the host cell provides shelter and nourishment for that bad attitude. And it begins to grow and spread throughout the body. Idle talkers and deceivers are both forms of insubordination. First 10 says the source of the problems in the Cretan church were coming especially from those of the circumcision. The Jews, 
the traditionalists and the legalists were undermining the grace of God and they were creating problems for Pastor Titus. He tells Titus in verse 11, whose mouths must be stopped. This is why church leaders can't be afraid of confrontation. When a person begins to create confusion and begins to spread legalism and false doctrine throughout the church, the people in charge have to stop their mouths. They have to steer them back in line or either kick them out, one or the other. For a church to grow, difficult people have to be discipled and sometimes disciplined. And this was especially true of Titus. Paul knew the people that he had been sent to pastor. And again in verse 12, Paul quotes the Greek philosopher Epimenides, who wrote in 659 B.C. of the Cretans, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. He says, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. The citizens of Crete had a shameful reputation, but that's why they needed a strong leader. In chapter 1, verse 14, Titus is to guard against Jewish fables and commandments of men. He says in verse 15, To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and their conscience are defiled. Now, all too often, we determine right and wrong by how those activities have been labeled by others. Perhaps our pastor or our group or maybe our parents while growing up said that this particular activity was wrong. And so we've always identified it as wrong. But you see, labeling like that doesn't always work. Right or wrong, Paul says, depends more on the heart of the person involved. I'll give you a good example. Take an adult square dance. Is it good or is it evil? Well, it all depends. What's in your heart? If your heart is full of love for God and love for others, then that square dance can become a fun time. It can be a way of of relaxing and having good fellowship with one another. But if there's lust in your heart, if there's evil in your heart, then dancing around with members of the opposite sex can provide opportunities for evil. What was good for some could become evil for others. You see, a pure heart can keep a beneficial activity pure. But an evil heart will turn even a harmless, wholesome activity into something that's evil. You see, good and evil so often depends on the attitude of the heart. If the heart is pure, then the activity becomes pure. If the heart is evil, then that activity will be evil. In verse 16, Paul warns of folks who profess to know God, but in works they deny him. The prime example of a difficult person, the hypocrite. In chapter 2, Paul begins, But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men may be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. In other words, men who are true to what they believe, passionate in their love for God and others, and patient in the trials and difficulties that they face. He says that the older men need to be examples to the younger men. Verse 3 says, the older women likewise. Older men, older women. They need to be examples 
to the younger members of the fellowship. I used to be a younger man, but now I've become an older man. And let me give you tonight, right here at Calvary Chapel, a brand new list of ways to know when you're getting older. You're getting older when your kids study things in history you studied in current events. When you get out of the shower and you're glad the mirror is fogged up. When you go to the barber and he asks you, why? When you find TV ads for hemorrhoidal cream interesting. You know you're getting older when your kids try to count the candles on your birthday cake but are driven back by the heat. <laughs> when the phrase, getting a little action, means your prune juice is working. <laughs> you know you're getting older when you're picking up items on the floor and you ask if there's anything else you can do while you're down there. <laughs> you know, getting old, I'm finding, I'm learning by experience. That getting old really isn't so bad when you get old with Jesus. Warren Wearsby writes, One of the strongest forces for spiritual ministry in the local church lies with older believers. Older godly saints can bring needed wisdom and experience to the younger members of the church family. And Titus 2 is proof. Titus exhorts the older women that they may be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. And who should they be teaching? Verse 4 tells us that they may admonish the young women. Now let me say, I have found that too many churches set their pastors up for moral failure by not taking seriously, verse 2, that the older women should admonish the younger women. What happens is the pastor is the one who begins to counsel the young lady. And when a pastor counsels a young woman in the church on an ongoing basis, dangerous dynamics get set in motion. For one, the woman sees the pastor as her hero. Oh, he's answering my problems. He's helping me fix my solution. And she begins to develop an attraction toward him. On the other hand, the pastor feels, wow, he's needed. He's appreciated. He's even idolized by this young woman. And you know where all this is going. This is why it's the older women, not the pastors, who should be discipling the younger women. You know, we will meet with a woman one time to help her with a particular problem. But we don't get into ongoing counseling relationships with the women of the church. What we do is refer them to the older women in the fellowship who can counsel them and disciple them and can help them. And the first lesson that the older women should teach the younger women is to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet. 
Younger women need to learn to be appropriate in their conduct and conversation. And chaste, he says, or modest. The word chaste means pure. They also, we're told, need to be taught to be homemakers. Once there was a little boy who was asked if his family said a prayer before dinner. The little boy answered, Nah, we don't have to. Mom's a good cook. Ladies, are you a good homemaker? The Greek word literally means keeper or guardian of the home. Paul wants to make sure that the younger women order their lives in such a way that it puts them in position where they can oversee and manage the affairs of their family. Dad is the head of the home. He's the CEO. But understand, mom is the office manager. She runs the day-to-day. Mama Bird is the one who needs to be in charge of the nest. Now, does that mean that a woman can't venture out of the house and help the husband earn money for the family? Of course not. No more than that means that a husband, whose primary duty it is to provide for the family, can at times pick up a vacuum cleaner and help out his wife around the house. As you learned in Proverbs chapter 31, the virtuous woman is seen as quite a successful businesswoman in her own right. And yet it does mean that no matter how industrious a woman might be, no matter how ambitious she might be, her chief responsibility is to manage and to orchestrate a peaceful and an orderly home base. Understand, guys, home is the most important place on earth. Home is where life makes up its mind. Home is a family's refuge and sanctuary. It is a stable home that makes for stable kids and a steady husband. A woman who neglects her home and allows chaos to rule at home is out of the will of God. Her family needs to be her number one priority. The older women need to teach the younger women, we're told, to be homemakers. Good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Apparently, women who don't follow their husbands are failing to follow God and giving opportunity for the Word of God to be blasphemed. Verse 6 says, Likewise, exhort the young men. And the young men, they're to be clear thinkers. They're to be not just hearers of the Word, but doers of the Word. They're to be men who seek the truth and watch their words. And trust me, guys, if you're that kind of man, you'll make it a lot easier for your wife to be submissive to you. Verse 7 is for employees. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering. Did you know that 7% of all bankruptcies in America are due to employee theft? 7%. American businesses lose five times the amount of money to employee theft pilfering than they do to shoplifting, actual theft. He says, don't pilfer, don't steal from your employer, don't take what he does not intend to give you, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. What a thought that we can adorn or embellish the gospel of God. Did did you realize that? That you can adorn the gospel that you can give to the gospel color and texture and beauty and pizzazz by living a godly life, 
transformed by that gospel. Verses 11 through 14 are powerful verses. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Grace teaches us. Did you know that? Grace teaches us. Grace not only comforts us and forgives us, but grace teaches us. And what does it teach us? It teaches us four things. It teaches us how to live. It teaches us where to look. It teaches us who to love. And it teaches us why to lift. How to live? We're to respond to God's grace by denying ungodliness and worldly lusts and living soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. It teaches us where to look. We're to be looking for the blessed hope, in essence, the rapture, and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It teaches us who to love. The Lord who loved us enough to give himself for us. And then it teaches us why the lift. Why did God go to all this effort to lift us up out of sin? And he answers it because God wants to make of us a special people. Purified from the world's pollution. Unified in our passion for good works. You see, grace changes everything. Our life, our look, our love, our lift. In chapter 3 of Titus, We're reminded that as Christians, we are members of both the kingdom of God and the kingdom of men. And we have a responsibility toward both kingdoms. It's our job to obey the laws of the land and also the laws of the Lord. Verses 2 and 3 encourage us to have pity on the lost. Guys, never forget that you you too were once an unsaved sinner. You too were lost and headed on your way to hell. You know, some of us had quite a rap sheet before we got saved. And and I just can't believe people who look at other people and say, Oh, you know, there's no hope for that guy. There's no hope for my husband. Not not my husband. There's no hope for for my brother. Wait a minute. (laughs) That's what people used to say about you. You know, but God saved you. His grace was sufficient for you. Why isn't it sufficient for that next person? Of course it is. Always remember... And he says, according to verse 5, in verse 5, he says, Always remember that we were not saved by works of righteousness which we have done. But how were we saved? According to his mercy, he saved us. Guys, the reason we can stand before God tonight has nothing to do with our merit. It has everything to do with his mercy. I heard of a former basketball player who attended St. John's University. The man died. And he made his way to the entrance way of heaven. There he was asked if he had done anything in his lifetime that might exclude him from paradise. And the man thought for a minute and and then he confessed. He said, well, you know, there was was one time. There was this one game. I took a shot at the buzzer. And the ball went in. And St. John's won. But you know, I was looking right at the clock. And right before I let it fly from my hand... Triple zeros. Time had run out. And and, and the ball that I shot really technically 
you know, should have been disallowed. But, you know, we won. St. John's won the game. And instead of me coming forward and telling the truth, you know, I just, I just kept my mouth shut. You know, we won a game, though, that we should have lost. The gatekeeper there in heaven, he said, Oh, man, he said, that's no big deal. What's the big deal with that? He said, come on in. Said, that's no problem at all. Don't even think anything about that. Come on in. The guy said, well, great. Thanks, St. Peter. He said, I'm not St. Peter. I'm St. John. <laughs> I thought that was a lot more funny than that. <laughs> the truth, though, is that it's not good works that save us, nor is it evil deeds that exclude us. Salvation is determined by faith in the love of the Savior. Do you have faith in Jesus? That's the determining factor that decides whether you go to heaven or hell. Notice too, chapter 3, verse 5. Jesus not only saves us, but He does something wonderful. He regenerates us. And He renews us. It's not what we do that makes us right with God, but it's what Jesus does in us. In you, when you are saved. You were regenerated. You were renewed by the Spirit. Now, what that means is that not only does the Lord wash us clean, but He does more than that. You see, a bath will wash the dirt off of a little boy. But have you noticed it doesn't affect his desire to get dirty? You can wash the dirt off of that little boy, but then you'll turn him loose and he'll run right back to the mud pies. You you can clean up the exterior, but you can't deal with that desire to get dirty. Whereas, on the other hand, the work of Jesus, it not only cleanses the person, but it changes that person's desire to get dirty. You see, the day I was saved, a transplant took place. My sinful nature was replaced by the nature of Jesus Christ. And now my heart, my basic instinct is to love God. It's to love others. What a transformation. I've been regenerated. I've been given new life and new desires. I've been renewed through the power of the Spirit. This is a wonderful thing. This is what's happened to you if you've given your life to Jesus Christ. Not only have you been cleansed, but God has dealt with your desire to get dirty. Isn't that wonderful? Now you want to be clean. You want to live for God. You want to love Him. Verse 8 adds, This is a faithful saying. In these things, I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved to good works. In chapter 3, verse 10, Paul tells us, Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning. It's been said, catch this, don't let it, don't miss it, it's good. A troublemaker is a person who rocks the boat, then convinces everyone else there's a storm at sea. (laughs) The person who delights in being divisive needs to be shown the door. He can harm the harmony of the church. Paul says, warn him twice. And if he doesn't change his way, send him on his way. Paul concludes with some personal notes. Verse 13, send Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. 
Have you ever heard that saying? It's 99% of the lawyers who give the rest of them the bad name. Surprisingly, here's a good lawyer. Paul's friend, Zenos. Paul closes his letter. And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. Here's how to ensure a good witness for Jesus. Do good works and meet urgent needs. Chapter 3, verse 15. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Paul's next letter is addressed to Philemon, our beloved brother and our fellow laborer. Now, you've heard of people who send letters of encouragement to prisoners. Well, this was a letter from a prisoner. Paul wrote this letter while incarcerated in the city of Rome. And he wrote it in response to a twist of providence that had taken place and that was testing Paul's friendship with Philemon. You see, Paul had met and become friends with Philemon while he was in Colossae. Philemon and his wife, Aphia, and their son, Archippus, constituted a wonderful Christian family who had opened up their home to the church. The Colossians were meeting there in Philemon's house. You know, that's interesting. And it reminds us that for the first 275 years of Christianity, there were no such things as church buildings. Did did you realize that? For the first 275 years, there was no such thing as a church building. The churches met in homes. And yet, that 275 years was the most successful period of expansion and growth in the history of Christianity. And it all took place from home settings. I think a home provides a wonderful place for Christian fellowship. It's informal. It's friendly. It's warm. It's less threatening than most church buildings. The atmosphere is perfectly suited for reaching people with the gospel. I love our home fellowships. It's great that we have them. In Acts chapter 2, remember, the earliest church met in the temple for the corporate bigger gatherings, and they met in the homes for the smaller gatherings. And that was a good combination. Nowhere in the New Testament, though, does the word church refer to a building. People are the church, whether they meet at home, whether they meet in a building. The church is the people of the church. Once a youth pastor was complaining to his senior pastor that the kids were chewing gum in the sanctuary. The pastor corrected him, no, the sanctuary is chewing gum. That's the way we need to look at it. We are the sanctuary. We are the church. Jesus promised us in Matthew 18, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Always remember, a building is a convenience for the church, but it's not a requirement. Notice too, Paul calls Philemon our beloved friend and fellow laborer. Paul's friendship with Philemon had been forged out of the midst of laboring together for the Lord. They had grown close fighting spiritual battles side by side, serving the Lord together. You know, they say that men in the military who have shared the front lines, who have been in combat together, make deep and durable lifetime friendships. 
There's something you see about the rigors and demands of combat that draw men together. They learn to communicate. They stay united. They have to trust each other. They have to cover each other's back. And that's why I believe the best way to make friends is to get involved in serving the Lord. When you share with other people the joys and the jolts of spiritual service, you form an unbreakable bond, a special relationship, a neat friendship develops. If you're having problem making friends, get involved in some area of service. Begin to serve the Lord with someone else. Paul and Philemon serve the Lord side by side on the front lines together. He refers to him as our beloved friend and our fellow laborer. Remember Tonto's name for Lone Ranger? Kimasabi. And did you know what Kimasabi means? It means faithful friend. A trust, a faithfulness was forged between the Lone Ranger and Tonto. All those episodes when they were fighting the bad guys together, it brought them together. It made them faithful friends. And when the bullets start flying, and when you're fighting battles together, spiritually speaking, you too will become faithful friends with those people around you. Paul writes of of his Philemon in verse 4. He says, I thank my God making mention of you always in my prayers. Did you realize here's the most important thing you can do for a friend? Pray for them. Most important thing. A friend who cares enough to pray is a real friend. Verse 5, hearing of your love and faith, which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. Philemon had a life full of good works and a mouthful of good words. Verse 7 is a wonderful verse. He says, For we have great joy and consolation in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. You know, there are two types of people in the world. You're either a light or a leech. You're either a giver or a taker. You know, some people are enthusiastic about life. They're a joy to be around. They're optimistic. They look on the bright side. They're full of faith and encouragement. When I'm around them, my spiritual batteries get charged. I walk away encouraged and blessed. This was the kind of person Philemon was. He refreshed the brethren. Oh boy. But there are other people who are just the opposite. They're spiritual leeches who feed and take off of other people and they drain your battery rather than recharge it. These are the folks who are always pessimistic, always negative, and you hate to be around them. Let me ask you tonight, what kind of person are you? Are you a giver or a taker? Are you a light or are you a leech? I heard of a man who made scores and scores of new friends by simply changing one word in his vocabulary. For years, every time someone made a comment to him, he would respond by saying, Ah, baloney. He decided to replace the word baloney with the word amazing. And now when someone says something to him, he responds, Amazing. (laughs) Just changing one word has won for him many new friends. Are you someone who refreshes others? Are you someone who tires them and wearies them? 
and takes from them. Verse 8 is where the plot thickens here in this book. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains. Onesimus was Philemon's runaway slave. He had left Colossae and he had traveled 900 miles to the big city of Rome. He figured that there he could kind of disappear into the crowd. One night, though, Philemon got himself into trouble. Perhaps he was at the bar. He had too much to drink. He ended up in a fisticuffs with another guy and was tossed into the slammer. And the next morning when he awoke from his hangover, he looked around the jail cell and he realized that he had been locked up with his old master's friend, that preacher who had been to town. He was there with Paul. Isn't that amazing? As the rabbis say, coincidence is not a kosher word. There are no accidents or coincidences in the plan of God. This was a God thing. Onesimus' reunion with Paul. It was a divine encounter. He was converted thereafter through Paul's witness and he became a brother in Christ. And that's why that Paul is now writing to his buddy Philemon. He's making an appeal. He's asking him to receive Onesimus again. Not as a slave any longer, but as a brother in Christ. But again, notice how Paul makes his appeal. He doesn't use his authority. Instead, his appeal is based on love. As he says in verse 9, yet for love's sake. Paul doesn't push, he pulls. He could have ordered Philemon. After all, he was Paul the aged, 30 years an apostle. If anybody had clout, Paul had clout. This apostle was a spiritual heavyweight, but he didn't throw his weight around. Paul hoped that Philemon would receive Onesimus, not because he had to, but because he wanted to. Not because he was made to, but because it was the right thing to do. Be careful when you push a friend. Be careful when you make demands, when you order him or her around. A true friend relies not on browbeating or guilt trips or pressure tactics or paybacks, but on love. Love with no strings attached. The best way to preserve a friendship is to avoid pressuring that friend. Remember, we're brothers, not barterers. Verse 11 employs a play on words. Onesimus actually means profitable. And thus Paul writes to Philemon about Onesimus, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. Before he had left Colossae, Onesimus was more of a headache than a help. But now Jesus has changed his life. He's made him profitable. He's now a real Onesimus. And that's true of all of us, isn't it? Jesus doesn't just purify us, but he makes us profitable again. He makes us usable and fruitful. He saves us so that you and I can serve him and be profitable servants. Apparently, this change in Onesimus was immediate. Paul wanted him to stay and to actually help him. But of course, that wouldn't be right. Onesimus first had an obligation to satisfy with his owner, with Philemon. And so Paul tells his friend in verse 14, But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing 
that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. He wanted him to send Onesimus back, but he wanted him to do it voluntarily. For any gift to be valid, it needs to be voluntary, not coerced. Paul continues in verse 15. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. Paul encourages Philemon to see his slave Onesimus in an entirely new light, no longer as a slave, but as a brother in the Lord. You know, slavery in any form is a horrible, anti-Christian, unbiblical institution. But it is interesting that in the New Testament, you never see anyone picketing the slave markets. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul instructs the new believers who were slaves to remain slaves and be good slaves unless their master willingly frees them and lets them go. You see, Paul knew that social problems like slavery or like abortion today or like poverty are actually symptoms of deeper spiritual problems. And if a sin is only dealt with on a social surface level, the problem won't really be solved. It has to be dealt with on a spiritual level, in the heart of the individual. And rather than rely on the political process, or even on moral resistance, Paul knew the best way to change people's hearts was by preaching to them the gospel. He relied on God to change the heart of the men and women to whom he preached. Paul didn't even try to abolish slavery in the church. Didn't even tackle that problem. Instead, he relied on love. He knew that if the people loved each other, the issue of slavery would take care of itself. Paul knew that legislative power (laughs) hits a wet noodle compared to the power of love. And that was the power in which he trusted. You know, it's strange today, but slavery has long been abolished as an institution. But have you noticed that men still oppress other men? It still goes on. Bigotry still abounds. People who are supposedly free are still controlled and manipulated by others who are smarter or more powerful. You see, the problem will always be with us until love replaces selfishness in the human heart. And The only thing that can do that is the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. But there's a deeper lesson in this book. In Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Philemon, he wrote these words. All of us are Onesimuses. We are all unprofitable slaves on the run from God. We departed for a while only to be received back forever and no longer just as slaves but now as brothers with the Lord, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And just as Paul interceded for Onesimus, guess what? Jesus has interceded for you. Paul intercedes for Onesimus here in chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. He says, If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. Paul's going to pay for any damage that Onesimus might have done. And what Paul does for Onesimus, Jesus has done for us. Note this picture. Understand, mankind has two problems. One is we cannot attain to God's standard. Two, 
We cannot pay our debt of the sin that we've occurred. Now, on the asset side of life's ledger, we lack enough merit to gain God's favor. We don't have the assets. And on the liability side of the ledger, we lack enough merit to pay off the debt that we've incurred. We're in trouble on both counts. We've got nothing in our savings account, and we've got these huge debts hanging over here. But Christ, the accountant of grace, he has the answer. In verse 17, he tinkers with the assets. He adds wealth and righteousness and stature. As Philemon was encouraged to accept Onesimus just as he would accept Paul, God vows to receive us even as he receives his own son, Jesus Christ. In Christ, when I approach God, I am assured of God's acceptance since he promises to treat me just as he treats Jesus. Did you know he's done that for you? That when you come to him, he's treating you just as he treats his own son, Jesus Christ. Why would you ever be timid? Why would you not rush the throne of grace when you have a need? And then notice in verse 18 what he does on the liability side of the ledger. Just as Paul agrees to cover any damages that Onesimus has created, Jesus promises to cover our spiritual debts. On the cross of Christ, the Lord Jesus placed our sin on his account. He took our payments. Our debt was cleared. And now we are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Did you know that Jesus has done that for you? You know, he's blessed you with the asset of righteousness. And he's taken away your debt of sin. Just as what Paul did for Onesimus. In verse 19, Paul reassures Philemon that he will pay Onesimus' debts. He even signs his name to it. But then he adds, I will repay, and and catch this, not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self besides. And in saying that, Paul proves that he's still human. (laughs) For he just contradicted everything that he said earlier. (laughs) Because he finally, in the end, throws his weight around and uses his clout and appeals to his authority. (laughs) Just in case, you know, the love doesn't work, he reminds his friend, Remember, Philemon, you would be going to hell if it wasn't for me. You owe me one, big guy. (laughs) Philemon owed his salvation to Paul's ministry indeed. And Paul was reminding Philemon of that debt. We probably, though, should excuse Paul for this one slip-up. All in all, he handles the situation delicately with loving care. I like what it's been said. A friend is someone who can step on your toes without messing up your shine. And that's what Paul did here with Philemon. I love what he says to Philemon in verse 21. He says, having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. You know, people often live up to what's expected. And Paul expects Philemon to do the right thing. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 7 tells us, Love believes all things. It hopes all things. You know, we all need a friend who will believe in us and expect from us the best and the good and the noble. You need a friend like that who thinks highly of you and who expects the best from you. That's how we really need to treat each other. Expecting the best. It's been said, a friend is someone who thinks you're a good egg even though you're slightly cracked. 
Paul closes his letter with a few personal greetings. But let me challenge you with a closing thought. What kind of a friend are you? Are you a faithful friend? Are you a chemosabi in Christ? Are you willing to work at real friendship? Hey, in light of eternity, a brother is worth the bother. That's the whole point of Paul's letter to Philemon. He was willing to work it out. He was willing to get involved, to preserve a friendship, to appeal to a friend on behalf of a friend, to work things out. And that's what real friendship requires, that willingness to work things out. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these two wonderful letters that we've covered tonight. Paul's letter to Titus, Paul's letter to Philemon. Lord, we've learned so much from both. I pray that you'll help us to go out this week to be the people you desire us to be. Lord, to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray for our church. Lord, I know that there are things that we lack. But Lord, you are blessing. You're working. And Lord, I pray that we would shore up our weaknesses. Lord, that you'll help us strengthen our strengths. Lord, I pray that you'll give us those things that we lack. Lord, the deficiencies, the areas in which perhaps we've steered away. Lord, draw us back. Lord, revive our hearts. Revive our church here at Calvary Chapel, Lord. We want our church to be the very best that it can be. Help those men that are in leadership, Lord, live up to those high standards, those qualifications that you've set. Lord, I pray for the people of our church, that they would support and pray for their leaders. Lord, help there not be any insubordination you know, among our body here. May there not be any host cells harboring any bad attitudes, but help us, Lord, to deal with those issues and continue to press on and work together for the cause of your kingdom. Lord, in the end, we'll see that a brother was really worth a bother. We love you, Lord. We ask that you help us. We pray these things humbly and in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.